Seminar on Freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. Thank you, Tom Morello, for our anthem, Let Freedom Ring, and for always jolting us awake, sharpening us up, and giving us courage for the work ahead. I'm Bill Ayers, and Malik Alim and I are gathered here with you for our seminar on freedom. We're looking uneasily at the world we've inherited, transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency and calling on you to join us as we search for spaces where we can tune into the sound waves of enlightenment and liberation, places where we can develop our freedom dreams and organize our revolutions. We're broadcasting from Chicago, traditional lands of the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. We acknowledge them, thank them, and honor the history of stolen land and resources, the history of the mass American genocide, and we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. Our first regular feature is a poem, and today's offering is a piece of prose poetry from Disturbing the Peace, Vivaklik Havel. Hope is a state of mind, not a state of the world. Either we have hope within us or we don't. Hope is not prognostication. It's an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. You can't delegate hope. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope, in this deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy when things are going well or a willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it's good and because we want it to succeed. The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper the hope has to be. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimensions of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. It is also this hope, above all, that gives us the strength to live and continually to try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do, here and now. In the face of this absurdity, life is too precious a thing to permit its devaluation by living pointlessly, emptily, without meaning, without love, and finally, without hope. Our second regular feature is a stream of consciousness free write, where we encourage you to write a short, authentic piece from nowhere, the nowhere of our freedom seminar and the nowhere of utopia. Here's today's prompt. Since your life is and should be a precious thing, too precious to waste on trivial pursuits, make a list of five to ten places you can name to nourish your hope and pursue your wildest dreams. 
email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. It's time now for our guest speaker series, Activists, Authors, and Artists After Hours, where we talk to friends and comrades who can help us think more deeply about this political moment, about where we are on the clock of the universe, about what is to be done, or what the known demands of us now. We look at the circumstances of our lives, release our most liberated imaginations, and ask ourselves not just what's going on, but also how our community, our city, and our world might be otherwise. We're searching for freedom. I'm excited to be joined in conversation with Dima Khalidi, founder and director of Palestine Legal and cooperating counsel with the Center for Constitutional Rights. Dima Khalidi is a lawyer, a writer, a community educator, an activist and organizer who represents in her life and her work the fight for justice and freedom for Palestine and the Palestinian people. Welcome, Dima Khalidi. I'm so excited to be here, Phil. Well, uh, <laughs> you're, you're exaggerating. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, it's wonderful to see you as always. I think just to situate ourselves before we get started, um, we've known each other for, what, 33 years? I haven't counted, but I'm glad you're keeping track. <laughs> I'm keeping track. Every year matters. And when you get to be my age, they start to count down in a very dramatic way. But I think we've known each other for 33 years. And I think we met in, well, I think we met actually in 1986. That's correct, 1986. So maybe 34 years. And so people are going to think, gosh, she must be old, those who don't know you. If you've known this person for 34 years, wow. But actually, I think we met when you were nine or 10. Or eight. Or eight, exactly. We met when you were a kid. So we've known each other a long, long time. And um, that means we have a lot of, you have a lot of insights into my flaws and character needs. And um, anytime you want to correct you me. Mind, Bill. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it works just the other way. The kids can see the grown-ups for what they are. In any case, it's terrific to see you. And um, I really do want to dive into the questions that animate your work. And we'll work around this question of how we know each other and activism and all the rest of it. But maybe we could start by just you talking a bit about um, Palestine Legal and, um, and how you started it, when it started, and what its purpose in the world is. Talk a little about Pal Legal. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I went to law school, um, you know, with a little bit of an ideal view of kind of what we could do with the law and, and international law in particular. I always wanted to, you know, imagine my work would be focused on Palestine. Um, and through law school and, and otherwise I was a bit disillusioned with, with international law, but I, um, had the fortune of working at the Center for Constitutional Rights during my law school career and afterwards, and especially with Michael Ratner, who, you know, got a few of us together to really think through what we could do on the issue of Palestine. It was something that, you know, he had become very committed to having finally visited occupied uh, Palestine mm. and, you know, overcoming his his Zionism of, of his early earlier years. 
And, um, you know, he, he had some partners who really wanted to invest in something. And, you know, with CCR had, had done so much already trying to hold Israeli officials accountable for war crimes mm-hmm. and had, had failed, you know, the, the legal system is just not, um, equipped or designed to hold, uh, our own, you know, allies in our, in our own government accountable. So, um, you know, what we decided to focus on after a lot of research and with Michael's urging as well uh, was was the movement here in the United States that, you know, after talking to many folks around the world and, and domestically, it, uh, it became really clear that organizing around Palestine was uh, getting harder and harder. The people faced more and more obstacles on campuses, um, in, you know, in different kinds of forums. And, um, you know, we were seeing lawsuits, criminal prosecutions. Um, and, you know, this is also after the, the kind of really traumatic um, prosecutions of folks in the post 9-11 era for humanitarian you know, assistance to Palestine. Mm. So, so there, was this, um, there was this clear need for legal support for the movement in the United States, pushing back against this really intensive effort to censor Palestine advocacy, people who were speaking out about Palestine, uh, Mm -hmm. academics, you know, students, activists everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that's what we do. We we are here as a kind of first stop uh, for, for people who are being attacked for talking honestly and openly about Palestine, supporting Palestinian rights, um, and we do all kinds of work, you know, we're, we're not a typical law firm. We're not just in the courts. We're really working to support the movement and to achieve its goals. Um, and a lot of it is defensive work, you know, preventing censorship from happening or fighting censorship when it does happen. But we also work with, with people to make sure they know their rights. We do know your rights workshops. We document what's happening, the kind of repression, who's behind it, you know, the the laws that are being passed to try to uh, punish Palestine activism. Um, we organize lawyers to uh, to be there to to defend uh, this movement. And you know, we're we're writing and we're speaking about the issues here. So yeah, and and Pal Legal started. What year did you? actually started as an organization. I know you spent some time building up to it, but when did Palatine yeah. start? We started in 2012 and, and right. really launched in 2013. So. so you're getting close to a decade. And I know you personally were involved with the People's Law Office in Chicago, assisting in the defense of Mohammed Salah. Uh, could you say a word about that? Yeah, it was... Um, it was during law school I interned at the People's Law Office, and uh, at the time they were defending Mohammed Salah, who was, uh, you know, facing criminal charges for sending humanitarian aid to Palestine, basically decades before. Mm-hmm. And it was a prosecution that really exemplified the intensive. Uh, coordination and cooperation between Israel and the U- U.S. prosecutors. You know, mm. they were sharing information. They were they had um, uh, Israeli intelligence agents testifying anonymously in court so that they couldn't be cross-examined. Right? They um, they tried to 
they, they've succeeded in um, preventing evidence of Muhammad Salah's torture mm. uh, from being uh, talked about in court um, and being presented as evidence in court. Um, so it was a, a really um, amazing trial that I got to witness. Um, the, the awesome Michael Deutsch was, was right. uh, Muhammad Salah's lawyer. Right, and right. Um, yeah, and I did a lot of research and, and work uh, supporting that, that case. Yeah, you've had several mentors in the law as well as in life that have uh, kind of set you up for the position you're in now, it sounds like. I mean, uh, Michael Ratner, Michael Deutsch, others. Um, and then you went to SOAS, right? You went to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, right? I did. And got a master's there? I did. Just say a word about that, because I found that fascinating. Yeah, no, I studied um, international law at, at SOAS and um, legal systems, right? And and specifically Islamic law. Mm. Um, but it was a, a really formative year in a lot of ways. Um, I, it, I had a great time, partly because it was the first time I had a, a very... Uh, Palestinian community. There was yeah. a great community of Palestinians from all over. Some, a lot from Palestine, and and many from the diaspora. And you know, we we had a Dubke troop. We were doing a lot of political work. Um, yes. And uh, so, so that was a great year and too short, really, of, right. <laughs> of a time there. But um, it it set me up to to spend a couple of years at Birzeit University working um, in the West Bank on a project that was looking at the way that traditional and informal legal systems kind of coexisted in Palestine. So, mm. you know, taking everything, it, it, it's such a mishmash of legal systems when you think about it, from the Ottoman to the British to the, uh, you know, to the Jordanian and Egyptian to the Israeli um, to the Palestinian Authority, right? And on top of all that, or underneath all that, perhaps, is this informal legal system that has existed, you know, and, and evolved from tribal law to, you know, informal justice systems developed during the first intifada to, you know, make sure that things weren't going into court. So it was ways that the society has, um, has uh, mediated conflict, um, you know, and, and how that kind of interacts with all these formal legal systems. It's really yeah, so it was a great intellectual journey for you. I mean, right? I mean, it was, yeah. it was fun and interesting. And I don't know if you draw on any of that now, but it certainly was a deep dive into, you call it a mishmash of traditions. Well, the area is a mishmash of peoples and religions and traditions and probably a very rich intellectual journey for you. Yeah, it was. And, you know, maybe that's something I'll go back to one day. Why not? You should write about it. It's true. Um, I, I want to jump ahead and then we can go back and forth. But I want to jump ahead to this moment because we're witnessing something in Palestine right now that, I don't know, some people think is a bit of a turning point. Um, the rebellion of Palestinians across Israel, the occupied territories and Gaza has seemed to me quite extraordinary. And the coordination of young people, and you've written about this, maybe say a word about this moment that we're living through in Palestinian history. Yeah, um, you know, I think the moment 
and and it feels like there have been you know several watershed moments even just in my lifetime but um this one feels a little different in that it um it really is is a moment of unity across palestine across you know all the palestinian um realities mm-hmm. um and and you know the 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 zionist project really at its heart has has tried to erase Palestine, Palestine and Palestinians. And they've, it's, it, you know, it's done that through attempts to divide us and conquer us, of course. And so this moment has, has shown that, you know, Palestinians everywhere, you know, whether they're in Jerusalem, Gaza, the West Bank, uh, you know, in 1948, Palestine, what's, what's now Israel, um, it, you know, in as refugees in, in Lebanon or Jordan or or anywhere and and across the diaspora, um, you know, it's it's what people are calling the unity intifada. For they they are saying with one voice that you know that we are Palestinian. This is all Palestine, um, and we refuse to you know disappear, mm-hmm. um, and we're one. So. I think it's the first time in a while that we've seen that kind of uh, unity of, of voice um, and people rallying. You know, it's it may have started in Sheikh Jarrah with the with the forced uh, expulsion of of Palestinians from from their homes there, um, but the fact that you know people in Gaza and people. Uh, you know, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel all kind of came together to say, no, we, we will not abide, um, is what's unique. And especially Palestinian citizens of Israel who, who have been um, not, historically have not been as involved in Palestinian uprisings. You know, we're seeing um, an uprising among Palestinian citizens of Israel. And of course now mass arrests of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, um, it's, I think a really important moment and, and it's mobilized people worldwide, um, as have, you know, past, um, past wars on Gaza, uh, you know, it's, it's when we see the, the most violence against Palestinians that we, we also see the most mobilization and that's, you know, um, it's it's I I guess the silver lining of a very horrific few weeks that we've we've witnessed. Yeah. I hear the phrase more and more um, that Israel is an apartheid state, and that's being actually referenced more commonly inside the United States. And you mentioned ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Um, would you call? Do you think an apartheid state is the is an appropriate phrase to use to describe Israel? Well, you know, I think Palestinians have been describing their reality for a long time now, and they describe the separate, unequal um, lives that they they live. You know, whether it's um, separate roads for Arabs, uh, Palestinians, and and Jewish Israelis, or or settlers, um, whether it's uh, an unequal. Um, system and for Palestinian citizens of Israel who just don't have the same rights. Mm. And that's, you know, that's the definition of apartheid. It's a, you know, crime under international law and it has a very specific definition, et cetera. 
though I, according to, you know, Beit Salem, the Israeli human rights organization, according to Human Rights Watch, you know, what Israel does and what, what Palestinians live through can be said to be the, a crime of apartheid. But it's not just apartheid, right? Um, this is a settler colonial state that has um, occupied and dispossessed and um, subjugated Palestinians for over 70 years. So it's more than just apartheid is what I'd say. Right. right. And, and, and international law all leans in favor of Palestinian rights. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't the UN consistently calling Israel out? And now you have mainstream kind of organizations like Human Rights Watch using the word apartheid. This is a shift, isn't it? Um, it is a shift in the sense that there is new terminology that has become, not new, but terminology that has become more mainstream and uh, acceptable. Um, but, you know, the truth is that international law and international legal organizations have been documenting mm. the, the uh, violations that Israel has perpetrated since its existence, right? right. And, and so none of it is really new in that sense, but it's the terminology that has become part of the mainstream discourse that is, is new, I think. And, and why do you think that is? Well, I think it's a, probably a confluence of factors. You know, there's first, first and foremost, and what is most often erased, ignored, is the the decades of work that Palestinians themselves have been doing to document what's happening, to define what's happening to them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what all of this is really built upon, right? You, you have organizations in Palestine, Palestinian organizations that have been doing this work for, for decades. Um, Al-Haq in the West Bank, Palestinian Center for Human Rights in, in Gaza. And so, um, so, so they really have built the framework and the foundations mm -hmm. for, for this. Secondly, you have um, a movement globally and also here in the U.S. that has been pushing from the grassroots to change the language around this struggle, right? Mm -hmm. and, and now more than ever, I think, where this, a younger generation has really taken the reins and said, this is how we, we demand to talk about it. This, this is the language that we want to use um, that, that is accurately describing what's happening and what has happened. Um, so that has also trickled up. And so now we see progressive lawmakers um, influenced by this grassroots movement and seeing that, you know, talking about Palestine doesn't necessarily mean the end of their careers, right? Um, so, so we see progressive leg uh, legislators, elected officials using this language. And for um, the first time, a Palestinian in Congress. That's right. That's right. And Is Rashida Tlaib has, has been very outspoken and very, you know, in Biden's face um, right. about, about um, her, her perspective. And that's right. been really critical. But, you know, when you talk about a younger generation, you're also talking about younger Jewish folks, right? And you're also perhaps referencing Black Lives Matter. Maybe you could say a word about that. Yeah, I mean, in in our work at Pell Legal, we, you know, the vast majority of our clients are students, are young people who 
are most active on their campuses and, and elsewhere who are organizing not just around Palestine, they are organizing across the board for uh, you know, immigrant rights, for climate justice, for uh, racial justice, um, and indigenous rights. And uh, you know that I think in the last decade or two, the the kind of cross movement work that we've witnessed um, has has really shifted the way people think about Palestine um, as not just this uh, you know foreign is domestic you know foreign policy issue, but as something that is really connected to all of the struggles that people are going through here. Um, why? Because the the same companies that um, uh, that that produce tear gas that Israel uses against Palestinian protesters is being used by U.S. police departments. Mm-hmm. Police departments uh, are being trained by Israeli the Israeli military, right? So the militarization of the po- police is something that that's common. Um, you know, the same uh, companies that are uh, making the wall between Mexico and the U.S. Uh, built the wall, uh, the, the, the apartheid wall in Palestine. Right. right? So, so there are, are these common, um, th- th- these underlying problems that we all have, the, the, the bad guys, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are, we, we have in common. And yeah, a common enemy. But I, I've been really impressed that with two things, really. One is the Movement for Black Lives national organization has taken Palestine to heart. And in a way, it's made of Palestine what South Africa was a generation ago and what Vietnam was a generation before that. In other words, it's the lens through which people can look and see what the U.S. role in the world is. And I think that's hugely important. It's a, I, I think it's a maybe a return of an internationalist politics, right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't look at um, racial justice issues through just a domestic lens. This, right. this part of an international struggle, um, and and that's what I think links, um, you know, the 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 mobilization of the '60s and '70s to today. It's this internationalist uh, view of of the world and and our own, you know, micro problems as well. I've also been impressed with Jewish Voice for Peace in the United States. I've been impressed with their ability to speak on campus with clarity, with a kind of a moral grounding. I don't know if you've had the same impression of JVP. Yeah, we've certainly seen JVP evolve over the years as well to be an uh, you know a, an anti-Zionist organization, um, a, an organization that is unconditionally supportive of of Palestinian Palestinian rights and Pal- and Palestinians also organizing, being it, being central to the organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they've they've played a really important role in pushing the Jewish community uh, on these issues. Um, you know, to the point where now you have several kind of left, um, left of center or, uh, uh, you know, left center organizations, Jewish organizations that are mm-hmm. um, starting to shatter the uh, so-called consensus on Israel among, among establishment Jewish organizations. 
And, you know, that has in turn um, led to some shifts in in the political class, right, where where we're able to, you know, elected officials have support from other places. They don't have to rely on APAC for their funding and, and for, for their political careers. Right. You know, I think the confusion, I think Pal Legal has been absolutely brilliant. I think Black Lives Matter taking this up has been important. I think JVP has been important. But when the recent um, Intifada began a few weeks ago and the unequal you know, throwing of violence against human beings. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And yet in the American media, we got all the cliches, you know, Israel has a right to defend itself. This is an ancient struggle that has no solution. How do you speak to those things? Well, um, you know, there there are certain myths that are uh, deployed again and again, as, as much as they're... Um, they're rebutted. They they never seem to to die, and that's partly because the the media continues to 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 um, to resurface them. You know, there's I think there's this notion that also is a myth that this this is such a complicated um, uh, issue, right? That this is an age old conflict, and it's about re- you know religion, and it's about um, but when you are able to see um, the story and hear the story from Palestinians, I think it's very clear. It's not complicated at all. Um, it's only complicated if we are trying to justify a modern day settler colonial state, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to um, fit it into another narrative of um, uh, uh, you know, it, to, to the point where you, you now you have Israelis saying we're indigenous, right? People coming from all over the world, from Europe, from Russia, et cetera, um, uh, the U.S., uh, and, and saying we're indigenous to this land. And, you know, because God gave it to us 3,000 years ago, right. we have the right to kick the people who already live here out. You know, that is essentially the claim. Um, that we are justified in doing whatever we need to do to create this modern settler colonial state. Right. And, uh, you know, if people believe that, then, you know, <laughs> then they should say that and right. they should be willing to uh, argue that and to say international law doesn't matter. Human rights don't matter. You right. know, um, and and so anybody who had a claim to a land 3000 years ago can reclaim it today. Right. Um, so, so I think if you bear it in that way, it becomes really easy to understand what's mm-hmm. happening. And, um, you know, that doesn't mean erasing, uh, the Jewish connection to, right. to the land, but it means recognizing that, uh, you can't just go and kick, uh, millions of people out of their homes and lands, mm-hmm. um, in order to fulfill some, some ancient um connection right or fantasy you know i often think the united states support for israel which is so un, uh, you know so unthinking and so kind of total for many years i think it, it's beginning to shatter but i've often thought that it's not just an electoral problem for the for us lawmakers but there is something about the foundational myth of the united states and the foundational myth of israel that elide quite brilliantly right i mean 
a land without people for a people without land. I mean, what what was the United States, if not a colonial settler project 200 years ago, which incidentally is still going on. But in many ways, that notion, there's nothing here and we need a place and here we are. Don't those two myths kind of come together in a fascinating and toxic way? Yeah, I mean, it's what um, settler colonial states rely on, right, to uh, justify their uh, occupation of a of a land that's already um, already lived in, right? Um, it, so, so I think you see these parallels in the language that early American settlers used, and you know, and and it's the same justifications that one that you, we're superior, right? Um, that we are, you know, that we're doing this as a service to the to the barbarians who already live here, to the savages that already live here. Um, th- these are common kind of right. um, story narratives that are used across uh, settler colonial states um, right. in order to justify the genocide, <laughs> the the right. uh, the ethnic cleansing that that you know is is required to, right. in order to achieve. Um, a, a state, right, or a nation state, or whatever. Exactly. An empire. You know, to pivot once more, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the right wing about cancel culture, and it's always being used to say, "Don't take down Confederate statues," or "Don't take the Confederate flag off of our state flag." But you spend a lot of your time resisting the canceling of. Muslim students, Palestinian students, Arab students from expressing themselves on campuses. And I think it's interesting that, you know, I've heard you refer to the Palestinian exception to the First Amendment. Maybe say a word about that. Yeah, well, you know, we we wrote a report in 2015 that Michael Ratner actually um, had a big hand in, in making happen. And he also came up with the, the term, the first, the Palestine, Palestine exception to free speech um, that we named our report after. Um, the fact is that, you know, you can, in the U.S., there's a very strong free speech principle, free speech principles. Um, the First Amendment is, uh, you know, uh, one of the, the founding kind of principles of, of the constitution. And, you know, the, it's compared to Europe where there are, you know, much, uh, much less strong free speech protections. The U S is, is kind of unique in that way. Um, and yet Palestine is one of those, uh, issues that, uh, you know, we routinely see, uh, the government and government agents um, trying to censor. And, you know, that's what the First Amendment is intended to protect. It's intended to protect government interference in our speech rights, right? It, the government interference in our protests and, mm-hmm. um, um, right, a, a kind of the government deciding what is okay and what is not okay to say. Um, that's what the First Amendment is for. And yet, you know, Routinely, Palestine is that kind of um, that red zone where uh, you speak, you say the word Palestine, and you know now we have a situation where boycotts for Palestinian rights are 
uh, are being, uh, you know, there, there's legislation in over 30 states now that is punishing boycotts for Palestinian rights, where, you know, our Supreme Court has said boycotts are protected First Amendment right. activity. Um, and, yet, and yet state legislatures are passing these laws that say, and, and say a word about BDS, people may not know, it's boycotts, but it's boycott, divest, sanction, right? Right, boycott, divestment, sanctions, which is a movement that's really uh, takes from the the anti-apartheid struggle um, that where boycott, divestment, sanctions was a huge part of the international um, movement against against apartheid regime. So you know, there's been over the last couple of decades this growing movement for BDS and. Uh, it's, you know, even though it hasn't affected the Israeli economy that much, it is a huge strategic threat to Israel, to yeah. its legitimacy. Right. right. And their their response is overwhelming. I mean, the, the response to BDS is so outstrips what the movement's actually accomplished. Right. That's so right. defensive. I mean. Exactly. And you see student governments, uh, dozens of student governments have passed resolutions asking their universities to divest for com- from companies complicit in Israel's human rights abuses. They have no impact because the universities don't take action, actually. Right. But what they do is to challenge the narrative on campuses. They challenge right. people's understanding. They mobilize people in support of Palestinian rights, where you have a generation of students who are now versed in this issue and are, you know, understand it in a way because of the organizing that's happened. So that's the threat. It's the threat to the narrative, right? And so Israel and its allies go to where they have the power, which is state legislatures, Mm. which is, you know, companies, which is Mm. the government. Um, And and so they try to suppress this movement from the top down. That's what's happening. That's the cancel culture. It's... um, Israel and its allies pressuring our government to shut down our speech on Palestine. Right. And and this is where a lot of your daily action takes place, right? In this particular fight. That's right. Yeah. So I want you to, I know we're going to run out of time because you're going to run out of power, but um, uh, but I'd like you to tell folks how they can support Pal Legal, how they can get a hold of you um, in in order to kind of continue to build this movement? How can folks get to you or to Pal Legal or both? Well, our website is palestinelegal.org and you can find a lot of information there. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of ways to support this work, but also the movement in general. If you're a lawyer, contact us. We, we, we'd love your help. If you're an organizer, you know, we can connect you with folks who are doing work on the ground. Um, you know, there are so many ways to, um, you know, it's it's a moment where I think uh, our silence is complicity on so many issues. And, and so we need to speak out in whatever ways we can. We need to contribute in whatever ways we can to, um, to make sure that I, the gains that the grassroots movement has made are not in vain, that we continue to keep up the pressure. This is what moves our governments. It's mm-hmm. our voices and our collective action. So that's right. what we, as Pal Legal, kind of are, are hoping to bolster and to um, to protect is that collective power. 
Well, Dima Khalidi, I am so grateful to you for joining me. And I have the deepest admiration for your work, <clears throat> for you as an organizer, educator, and fighter. Thank you so much, Dima. Thank you, Bill, for being one of those people who has been a mentor and has inspired. And, uh, uh, you're too kind. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast, Ergo, and to Malik Alim, producer, co-conspirator, friend, comrade, and engineer. Under the Tree is hosted and written by Bill Ayers. Theme music is by Tom the Night Watchman Morello. Artwork is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner. Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Under the Tree wherever you listen to podcasts. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a place to explore. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>